Welcome back to the new season of the Vet Space Ireland podcast with your hosts, myself, Michelle McGuire. And I'm Hazel Mullins. And today on our new series, first episode, we have Rosalinda Devereaux, who is president of the Irish Equine Veterinary Association, and also AIVA for short. And also um, she is the owner of Wexford Equine Veterinary Practice. So we are very excited to have her on the first episode of series four. Welcome, Rosalinda, to the Best Space Ireland podcast. We are delighted to have you on. How are things? Grand, thank you. Yeah. We were asking you off, off, um, off air, you know, um, <laughs> where your name originated from. So I think it's an interesting story because I said it's a beautiful name. And I was like, is there a story behind it? So there's a little bit of one, isn't there? There's a little bit of one. Yeah. I mean, it's, as I said to you, it's um, my parents had been to a Shakespeare play and, and, um, uh, Rosalind is a character and as you like it um, you know there's I don't know there's more of a history there in terms of it means beautiful rose in Spanish and that was what I always thought it meant till I actually went and looked in a sort of a history of names and in a library at one point and it actually came from more of a Germanic history uh, being Hroslint which means um, beautiful or gentle horse which um oh, apt. Is, very apt. Is apt because that's been my passion my whole life has been horses so anyway it, there's a bit of a bit of history oh, brilliant <laughs> um and Rosalinda do you want to tell us um and listeners just about your veterinary journey so far and tell us you know where it started and where you are now yeah so I suppose I I qualified in 2000 in um the RVC in London um, and it was definitely a journey to get there, whatever about whatever's happened since. Um, I'm, I'm from the States and grew up there thinking, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily going to be living overseas or anything like that. But um, after going to Cornell undergrad, um, I discovered the Atlantic Bridge program that places uh, students into Dublin and London and possibly Liverpool or Edinburgh as well. And a friend and I both applied and were both placed into the program in London. And she married a Englishman and went back to the States. And I married an Irishman along the way and settled in <laughs> Westford. So, so that's how I've ended up over here. Um, I came to Ireland in my second year to get some work experience and ended up going to Wexford and went to Ross Toonstown Stud in the springtime and met my husband Patter there. So that was back in 97. Um, so was it always equine for you, Rosalinda? Did you ever think maybe you might do smallies or it was always equine? There was never any other. Well, I, I suppose my my passion from a young age was always riding horses. And um, what made me want to be a vet was I always had to work with horses um, to be able to ride them. Um, and so when I was in secondary school, I was starting to think, well, what jobs could I do that would allow me to work with horses that was maybe something beyond mucking out stables? And um, so that was when I thought, oh, maybe um, I would look at veterinary. Now, I actually thought I would be lucky or fortunate to actually become an equine vet because um, it's 
I think horses in Ireland are more, um, I don't want to say commonplace, that's not the word, but it's just more people have horses per capita, I would think. Whereas in, in the US, it's not everyone has a horse and not everyone is, you know, going to be a, an equine vet. You, you know, it's very difficult to get the internships, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought um, mm. even if I became a vet, I might not be lucky enough to become an equine vet. And so I was was thinking maybe mixed practice. Um, I always knew that I did not want to be stuck indoors. So small animals Mm -hmm. was going to be out of the question in terms of, you know, being restricted to being in a small animal practice. Um, I I do actually a little bit of small animal work um, from the practice that I'm in. But um, yeah, no, I always knew I wanted to be out and about. (laughs) So so it was always yeah, I hear you. Equine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so and tell us more about the. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, ahead. I was going to say, tell us more about the RVC. I don't think we've had an RVC grad on the podcast, have we, Michelle? I don't think so. No, you're the first. Yeah. So I suppose, um, yeah, the two of us got accepted to London, and um, that was in <clears throat> the spring of ninety-five and they gave us about a week to make the decision and a big down payment and we sort of took the plunge and off we went to London. Um and there was about ten or eleven Americans in that class, maybe one Canadian. Um we obviously were all older students, so um um you know we'd already done an undergraduate course. Um mine was in animal science. But um, yeah, with London, you the first um, two years are spent in central London, um, in Camden. Um, so that was quite exciting. And then we you go out to Potter's Bar, which is sort of more countryside to do the, the final three years. Um, but um, but yeah, no, um, the RVC was great. It's I mean, it's a much different school now, I think, to what it was back then. Um, but I thought that the seeing practice program that they had was excellent. And um, I would say that what's available in Ireland, um, from what I can see with students going out to see practice, wouldn't be quite as involved. Um, so that I just felt that, you know, by the time I had qualified from the RVC, you know, they had made sure that we had, and castrations and we had spayed and neutered small animals and you know there was a charity hospital that we got to work in I had done a lot of actual hands-on work you know I was I was very comfortable putting in a catheter all these sorts of things and um uh you know we had a pony herd that we were examining throughout the year and so I was comfortable scanning mares when I qualified you know, I just I feel very fortunate for the experience that I had because it seems more and more now the class sizes are getting really large and that the students coming mm-hmm. out have had less opportunities to get um, practical experience. So um, following on from that, um, Rosalind, what kind of tips would you give to maybe some students or new grads coming from the um, RCV based on your experience? Um. I suppose one thing I I say to students, um, you know, everyone looks to the big hospitals to 
to either get an internship or to um, do their seeing practice if they're still in vet school. And okay, maybe that's where you're going to see real specialized surgeries or high end cases. But I think if you're getting trying to find someone who's going to spend the time to maybe show you things and see more, you know, maybe actually get the chance to do something, you're probably better off going to some of the smaller practices that the the vets probably have more time to actually spend time with you. You know, you're not just a number that's coming and going every week. Yeah, watching and holding horses. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, so that's that, good that, advice. That's I remember good. I used to go out in uh, on my weekends off and uh, help a local Cork vet doing vettings, and right. I was my my job was taking the blood. Okay. So when I qualified, I could hit veins and horses. Yeah, <laughs> dogs and cats, not so much. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, it is it is about kind of just finding that experience, I think, and. And also finding someone that is willing, uh, you know, to give you the time as well. And yeah. sometimes in the bigger hospitals, they, they're so under pressure with time that That's they right. try their best. Um, and did you go and work? So after you qualified, did you go and work in a big hospital or did you go ambulatory or what was the route you went then? So um, my personal life dictated what I did in that um, I had I got married actually between my third and fourth year. Oh. and um Potter is my to, Potter. To, to live in, in England the last couple of years and um again it wasn't planned but I was pregnant when I qualified so this put in um you know I had to work around that now it had taken me 10 years from the time I started at Cornell doing my undergrad to when I was qualifying in London um very pregnant and I was so worried that I would never see a day of work after everything <laughs> that I kind of I even though um I don't know how fit I was I went to to Waterford and I worked in a small animal practice for the last six weeks of my pregnancy just after I qualified and um so I got my hands in doing that and then I had to stop actually to have my um my daughter Catherine um and then I had to figure out what the next step was going to be, because, you know, as a woman, having just had a child and only recently qualified, it wasn't going to be easy then to get a job. Um, so I did look around and there was nothing forthcoming in Wexford at the time. So I actually went and bought an ultrasound machine and I decided that while Catherine was a baby, I would... Um, scan a few mares at um, Rostoonstown Stud. And so I that's what I did. And things just sort of happened after that. It wasn't planned at all. I thought after getting a bit of experience, then I would probably go and get a job. But um, uh, it was coming into the Celtic Tiger times and things were very busy with um, mares and stallions and um, especially with thoroughbreds in Ireland. And I scanned lots of mares that first year and um, by in coming into the next year, people were ringing me saying, would you come out and scan my mare or can I bring a mare to you to scan? And by the end of the second year, all of a sudden I had a practice that I'd never intended on having. <laughs> That's and, amazing. Um, I then hired a second vet to come in and 
helped me and I then had a second child. Um, so, you know, it's, it's left me, um, I was so worried when I, obviously when I got pregnant right at the end of vet school. Um, but with hindsight, I suppose I've had a very supportive partner, um, without whom I couldn't have done this, but, um, I had my children when I was still relatively young. I've turned 50 this year and I now have an empty nest. I have two beautiful girls that are both in college at the moment. And I actually have time to sort of, you know, start, go back and learn things or do other things with my life now. Do you know, I, it's, I mean, everybody's mm -hmm. different, but I would see that there's several women that are vets that are having their families quite late and, you know whatever about the energy to be a vet like trying to deal with small children as well like it's it's tough so you know in some ways I feel blessed that things happened the way they happened and um it's all worked out you know that's uh, very inspiring you just call the scanner and it all fell into place <laughs> so yeah wow. I mean it, I suppose one thing in addition to that I, I remember and doing my rotations and being pregnant in my last semester at, at the RVC. And um, I obviously had to tell uh, my professors that, you know, with health and safety reasons, everything else, things I couldn't, couldn't do. But one of them was telling me that a, a Danish contingent had come to the RVC to look around and to, um, there was sort of this directed learning program that was happening at the time. And um, they asked the, um, the English uh, professors, uh, so what do you do in regards to your female students? And the professor said, well, what do you mean? We don't do anything in regards to our female students. And the, the Danish contingent said, well, well, what if they want to have a child and, um, or they get pregnant? And um, they said, well, they just have to drop out or they have to do whatever we don't make any concessions for them and anyway the point is that in Denmark or maybe it was in Scandinavia in general that it was almost accepted that women might start having their family while they were in vet school and they could do a staggered program so that if when they were pregnant or their you know babies were very young or whatever they could take six months out of their program and then go back into at school, you know, Absolutely. after they'd had their babies. But mm -hmm. the idea of it was then that by the time they qualified, these children were maybe two or three and were old enough to go into crash. And so, they, you know, they could go to work then. So, you know, it was something that wasn't obviously going to apply to me one way or another. But um, I always thought that that was a really interesting insight all those years ago that, um you know, it, I haven't heard of that happening outside of Scandinavia, but um, it's very interesting. <clears throat> yeah, I did. I did. I saw, um, I suppose, practice with a vet in Scandinavia and a big practice. And there was a lot of female, large animal vets. And I always, you know, I was maybe four years graduated and they all had young children. So yeah. uh, they started work at seven in the morning and they finished at maybe two. And then they collected their children and then they had the rest of the day with them. And yeah, so they had their own call as well, but they were able to work it around. And I was like, oh, that's it was just a very, very um, yeah. accommodating 
yeah. culture. Yeah. Um, and it was just very much a given within the practice that this was, oh yeah, this person works early because she has children, this person. And yeah. I, I do think things are changing in Ireland, but it's taken a long time. But I do think um, because of the lack of vets perhaps now, that's going to have to change. Practice, yeah. Practices have yeah. to become more adaptive mm. um, to female needs. And has there been any progress from the vet schools on that, like either in Dublin or in the UK? Does anyone know where they might be able to introduce that type of staggered program or just know it's just tough luck if you find yourself pregnant? I, I don't actually know. I don't know. Mm. Um, I don't know either. Interesting. Mm. Very interesting one. Well, that's I, very I would think when there's more graduate students that are in the vet schools now that it probably is becoming more common I would have thought yeah. anyway but um if there's older students in the vet schools they'd have to very good okay so um what are the biggest challenges in your opinion facing the veterinary industry right now this is always a toughie everyone's like oh there's so many <laughs> yeah I mean I think um like personally I think the challenges are rising costs that I suppose most businesses are facing at the moment. Um, you know, I know from being at, at meetings and things that it's recruitment and retention. That's that's sort of probably the biggest challenge I would have thought. Um, I made a big change in my own practice um, coming out of the recession that I went back to working on my own. So I, um, you know, my... My practice has changed a lot um, and, you know, I went from supporting another vet and having a secretary and, and um, someone working in a, a yard and everything else to going back to doing what I could manage on my own. And my husband sort of helps as a practice manager, I suppose. Um, and I would go into the, the factory to do a shift every day and balance it out that way. Now, I'm very fortunate. Um, I know this is a bit beyond the question you were asking, but um, in some ways I feel bad that I am not employing vets, um, but financially um, it has worked out much better for me as an equine vet that there are two and sometimes there's been three other equine vets in Wexford that also work pretty much on their own. And I, I suppose years ago, I, I sort of reached out the hand of friendship to them and um, said, listen, lads, let's work together. And so we we sort of have a cooperative system of covering for each other. Um, and it works out really well, you know, and we have a WhatsApp group or whatever to make sure that um, we can work out the on-call and, you know, we would do a bit of, um, you know, buying of... Uh, I don't know, vaccines or sedation or various things as well, just because it's, again, it's sort of hard to compete when you're buying small quantities. So that's worked out re really well. And especially with, again, with equine work, it's very seasonal and it's hard to keep someone employed throughout the whole year. And mm -hmm. in the past, unfortunately, I found that <clears throat> I was able to pay the vet that was working for me, but it seemed that the money that I always struggled to collect would have been my salary as such out of the practice so it just economically it didn't make sense um, yeah. but that was a, a probably a big learning curve 
that I, I went through. Well, fair play for actually reaching out and, and, and you know, f- forming that cooperative because I think a lot of practices in Ireland are probably going to have to do the same and put maybe, mm-hmm. you know, differences they had in the past and things like yeah. that behind them because it is the rotas and the on-call, I think, that it's going to be the, the um, what's the word, the brick wall against a lot of rural practice anyway, I think. I think um, so. so it's, yeah, no, that, that worked out really well, though. So that's that's great. So there's three of you on the rota doing a one and three, is it? Well, and, and it's even a little bit more vague than that, that initially we created a rota and then sort of found that, well, you know, you could be off on a certain night and you hadn't planned to do anything anyway. And then one of the other vets was taking a call that, you were home and you could have done so the the rota actually looks more like if i know next thursday i want to go for dinner or go out somewhere i'll make sure one of the others is around so that the nights i have off are actually the times that i want to go away and do something okay like a vet space podcast (laughs) so you're still kind of by and large doing a lot of your own work and a lot of your own out of on call exactly and do you exactly. ma- how do you manage that? Would you have a lot of out-of-hours work, Rosalinda, or just from like a well-being and a work-life balance kind of thing? Would you have a lot of out-of-hours work? Or Well, I always hate when people ask me that question because it's usually when all of a sudden you get a call in the middle of the night when you've said, <laughs> no, it's grand. But yeah. in, in general, um, you know, equine work wouldn't be like the work, the out-of-hours work that I know cattle vets you know, colleagues that I, I I would know, they seem to get called out an awful lot and they have to know they have nights off. Whereas it's more for me, especially in the spring, it's like your day is extended. So someone comes home from work and they realize they have a sick foal or mm-hmm. something like that. But, you know, touch wood again, it's the, that middle of the night. It's fairly rare. It's fairly okay. rare, you know, it tends to be in the spring going out to a foaling or something like that. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's it's and, and again, like if I am out for a couple of nights in a row, like I can arrange that I know for sure I can take a night off and, and get cover. But it's just I suppose we've found that to be flexible works better than to have a strict rota that's worked out months in, in, in advance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, still still a pretty good system still a great system to have yeah yeah Yeah, it works it works well yeah yeah so on your time off then talking about time off (laughs) Rosalinda uh, Rosalinda, what do you do what do you like to do so I um I try to ride horses when I do get a chance um I, I thought you to, might say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to do a bit of eventing and um, I've discovered now that that's a little bit too much than I can take on and, and actually enjoy. So now I I have a horse actually that's over in Kirklow, um in livery and I can go ride the horse on the beach when I have time. And the, the guy that runs the yard, he actually competes the horse a bit as well. So you know, I can go and watch him out eventing or I can go enjoy him and and do more leisure wow. <laughs> leisure riding. Um I enjoy going to the opera. I don't get enough a lot chance to do that, but um that's that's sort of a, 
another passion of mine. Um, there'd be a lot of music in my family and uh, my daughters are both um the older one loves musical theater and the younger younger one has just gone off to the UK to study classical singing. Oh wow. So um wow. You know it's it's um talented so, family. <laughs> live vicariously a bit through them as well. So it's <laughs> it's um and did you mention choir earlier? You were saying you missed choir practice. Yeah. That, that's <laughs> actually something I've only just signed up for because it's literally <laughs> since September we have this um, empty nest and I thought well we've been a taxi service for the last 20 years and um, we can maybe I'll sign up and go do something myself so um, good, good for you yeah so Rosalinda will you tell us then about Aiva what yep. is it and how did it come about and before we get on to the conference okay so Aiva, I suppose, um, this is our second year um, and it is a, an association for equine vets. Um, you know, previously, uh, a lot of the committee that are in Aiva now were um, in the equine committee of Veterinary Ireland. Um, I suppose it's not something I want to go into a huge amount of detail in, um, but I, the important point is that um, we were looking for a little bit more autonomy and to get into a position where we could um, make decisions for ourselves and not have to jump through a lot of hoops in order to decide to put on CPD or whatever it is we wanted to do and you know to be honest I don't think there's any animosity there at least especially not from my part anyway um you know it's it was a big chance effectively to go out on our own um sort of going out and starting with nothing um but I suppose you know, Veterinary Ireland, it has a big role as a union for vets, mm -hmm. um, which is an important role. Um, the the IEVA is more, looks on itself as being an association and, um, you know, our interests are to provide quality CPD um, to support new grads and um, vet students. Um, so I think our outlook is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so that's kind of where things started. And um, we found very quickly that there were, we were, we got huge support from the equine veterinary community. Um, we've also been, got a lot of support from uh, sponsors, um, different companies um, willing to get involved and, um, so that's been that's been great. Um, we are part of our conference this year is we're going to have a nursing equine nursing stream. Um, so far, we have not had um, nurses that are members of the IEVA, but that's something that I'd say we will look at going forward. Um, you know, at the moment, there's been very very little CPD available for 
equine nurses. So, yeah. you know, that's something that that we really want to to help out with. Um, and I think going back to what you were saying about practices are going to have to, um, you know, learn to get along and to cooperate. You know, I was chair of the equine group in Veterinary Ireland for three years and um, you know there were discussions now and again about um, would we stay or would we go and I always sort of knew that the big challenge coming out was going to um, you know that everyone was going to have to come together and get along and you know there is always bound to be history and practices and territory and everything else and and you know I think hopefully things have changed for the better the way you know vets work with each other than in the past but I knew that was going to be a big challenge if you know we were all of a sudden only had ourselves to to, to organize things um I I think that we have done a good job of that and um I think most of the the big hospitals practices in Ireland um are involved in IVA so that's brilliant um I would say possibly I was pushed forward to be the first president because I am a sole practitioner down in Wexford <laughs> and I am from the states and studied in London so I don't have <laughs> you know history with anybody and that means that I can get along with everybody um and uh, so <laughs> I'd say that's where how I've ended up where I've ended up. Um, but I'm happy to do it, you know, and, and um, you know, I think we're 250 members strong and that's good for itself. Yeah. And it's not easy to start something from scratch. We know that. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but so so well maybe, done. Maybe maybe Rosalinda can could uh, organize our conference next year. That'd be good <laughs> if we have. Um, Rosalinda, so tell <laughs> us if we about... over the post traumatic stress. <laughs> well, we're still we're still recovering. But um, tell us about the conference. So it's on the what what dates are is it on? Yep. So it's all the details. Yes. Okay. So it's the tenth to the twelfth of November. The 10th is going to be a practical day that will be um, held at Clinic Nagapla, um, Jerry O'Sullivan's practice. Mm -hmm. And that is actually sold out. I was just going um, to say it's sold out because I was trying to book it for some of our events. I had a look too. So it's the hottest ticket in town. You can't get one. Yeah. <laughs> you can't get into the wet lab anyway. No. Um, so we did warn people that that was going to sell out quickly and it did. But um, we have... Uh, so that the theme of the conference this year is um, diagnostic imaging and we have Seamus Hoey from UCD who's one of the main speakers and then we have uh, two ISELP instructors um, Katia Winderink and Michael Dancott from Belgium and the Netherlands and so you know they are our sort of key speakers as such um, the main stream of the conference will be on the 11th and 12th, which is the Friday, Saturday, and that will be at the Lyrath Hotel. Um, what we've done is on top of providing sort of a main stream of scientific lectures, we will also have an alternative stream. And in that there's gonna be some um, repeating, maybe 
practical based info lectures. We have the Department of Agriculture coming in to speak about the new prescription service system. Um, we're going to have someone talking about um, uh, radiation protection. Um, there's going to be um, demonstrations of these new fracture kits um, that are going to be introduced into the race courses um, soon. So uh, Boringer have come on as one of our main sponsors for the conference. Um, so we're delighted to have them and they will be providing um, some speakers as well. Um, so there's quite a, a mix. And then in that, there will also be some lectures specifically for, for new grads. Um, we're looking at setting up a sort of coaching mentoring system. Um, now that's something that's we're not ready to introduce that yet, but we're going to be doing some information gathering to see what the wants and needs are. Um, I suppose one thing to try to put out there is that we're trying to keep the cost to everybody down as much as we can, like whether it's the cost of membership of the IEVA or the cost to the delegates at the conference and um, to new grads, especially, you know, everything's being kept to a minimum. And we've been really delighted that to make up for that, sponsors have come in and taken stands and sponsored streams. And, you know, without them, we just couldn't um, keep these delegate uh, prices so low. So again, DECRA are involved, Duggins, um, Cruz, Malloy Veterinary, um, they've all come in with, you know, additional support above and beyond just having a stand. So, so yeah, it's um, all hopping up at the moment. Um, I suppose one other exciting feature of the conference is um, we started it last year, although we had to do it virtually, is um, IMV came on board to sponsor uh, a, a bursary for case presentation prize. Um, so uh, there'll be on the Saturday afternoon, four finalists um, will present interesting cases. Um, and then one will be selected as the overall winner. Um, the overall winner will receive a thousand euros and the mm -hmm. runner up will, three runner ups will get 250 euros each. Um, the people that have submitted abstracts but weren't selected as the four finalists will be invited to um, submit a poster presentation um, that will be near the IMV stand and there'll be a hundred euros for the best poster. So last year in its first year, um, we had 11 people um, give submissions and um, it was very difficult to choose. And this year there have been 19 submissions, um, which is, you know, incredibly exciting. And uh, people have also um, given submissions from the UK as well. Wow, so that's, great. that's made it very difficult to to select the final four, as it were. But that will be announced this week. But um, but yeah, that's for people who qualified um, since 2017. So that will be. That's really mm. good. And have you any bit of dancing or dinner or social activities? Yeah. So on the Thursday evening, we have a welcome reception and um, 
that will be a bit of fun. It's a, it'll be a, a buffet and we're going to have a table quiz with uh, Potter Scannell on board to uh, to uh, good crack. All the questions. That should be a good crack. Um, on the Friday evening, we have our sort of gala dinner and um, that uh, should be a great event as well. Um, we have uh, Dave Rendell, who's the incoming Biva president coming over from the UK will be joining us for the conference and we've twisted his arm into saying a few words after the dinner um, he told me I don't want to be known as an after dinner speaker but um, he does have an interesting story to tell he was over um, in eastern Poland there this year helping out with um, some of the Ukrainian horses that were had suffered due to the war that's been going on. So he's going to tell us a bit about that, which I suppose is a somber subject, but at the same time, you know, it's something that, you know, we it's live in a little bit of a bubble that it's important to hear exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, well, it sounds like a very, mm, very good all-around event. So well done. And when we share- You'll the, be there, Michelle, won't you? I, I'm going, yes. Um, Great. My, we're exhibiting. I work. I'm the manager of Troyton. So not, not enough cows there for me, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a good cohort of our crew going. Um, Great at Troyton, yeah. Almost everyone, I think, is going. So good, good. Yeah, yeah. we'll just barely have a few there's people. A couple of the high field crew going too to keep keep good. the show on the road. But no, all of our nurses are going on the Saturday, and yeah, the majority of the team are going, and we're exhibiting. So. Exactly. Yeah. No, we, that was just something I kind of from actually being over at the Beaver Congress this year, I realized that it wasn't just um, drug suppliers and equipment suppliers that were exhibiting that there was um, the different hospitals and universities. And, you know, there was a much broader range of exhibitors, which makes it more interesting for everybody. So that's where we yeah. put out the the call to the different hospitals. And I think the, hopefully the donkey sanctuary will be there as well and hri are coming and so again it's going to be great yeah so rosalind have you got a funny story to finish us off we always like a bit of a laugh <laughs> now sometimes these stories aren't necessarily funny at the time but in hindsight they're funny so i i do have one and you can decide to delete it afterwards if, <laughs> if, it's, if, 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 if it puts us all to shame but um it, it goes back to years ago and probably doing all the things you're not supposed to do as a vet or a parent. But um, my my daughter, Catherine, um, used to come around with me a bit, especially sometimes I might have to pick her up after school and then she'd be dragged along to a couple of calls on the way home. And unfortunately, one day um, she was sitting in the back of the car when I had to drive into the middle of the field to put down an old mare that had gone very lame and, um, you know, on, under welfare grounds, really, the best thing was to to put her to sleep, which I did. And um, again, unfortunately, Catherine had to witness that anyway. Maybe a month later, Catherine was in the back of the car again, and it was something in some ways similar, but in many ways not. We went to um, a farm, of course, belonging to my husband's uh, cousin, and uh, <laughs> he um, he had a mare out in the field that was very lame. 
as well. And um, so Catherine toddled along actually with me on this occasion out into the field and we looked at the mare and I said, uh, I said, Patty, I'm just going to go back to the car and get an injection for the mare. Now, I think Butte was probably in my mind at the time. Catherine looks at me and she says, oh, mommy, she says, don't put the mare down. <laughs> I, I said, no, no, Catherine, I'm not going to put the mare down. I'm just going to give her some painkillers. <laughs> so she looks at Patty and she says, you know, my mommy puts them down when she doesn't know what to do. <laughs> and all I could think was, fortunately, I knew this guy well enough that we could all have a bit of, of a laugh about this. Oh my god! But it was just <laughs> children will show you up. Oh, I suppose was the lesson out of that one. Yeah. So, but yeah, she was only about five, and this is what she came up with: I put them <laughs> oh. down when I didn't know what to do. Oh my god! Oh. They would really land doing it. Yeah. Oh, that's really funny. Oh. You're standing there going, "I, I swear, I don't." <laughs> it's not true. Mm-hmm. Oh, kids. Yeah. Check us out on social media and tag us whilst you're listening to the podcasts. We'd love to see it.